There's a very helpful cartoon booklet by Matthew Johnson with a foreword by Professor Gordon Parker. It's called, I Had a Black Dog, His Name Was Depression. I'm also indebted this morning to my friend Professor George Sieber for access to his unpublished work, A Therapist's Handbook, particularly his study on sleep and depression. We all have down days. We get the blues from time to time, especially if our relationships have fouled up or we're disconnected from God. But when it's more than merely just the ups and downs in life, when dark moods refuse to go away, we need to explore the possibility that clinical depression could be a factor. And that's more than a lack of our faith or bad behaviour or our lack of grace and forgiveness. It may indicate that depression itself has kicked in. Of course, as Christians, if we neglect to pray, if we neglect to read the Word of God, if we neglect to be in fellowship, we'll get ourselves into a bad spiritual position. And that is a spiritual factor that needs spiritual ministry. But depression can affect good Bible-believing people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. They say about one in five people in the world will suffer from some form of depression or mental illness. Think about that when you drive home from church and just hope that every fifth car is getting help. It's a world statistic and it affects people regardless of their faith affiliation. Depression is the most common mental illness factor in the world today. And it's important that we as Christians address it. The symptoms usually appear early in adulthood or even in the teen years. Women seem to be twice as prone to depression as men, and they tend to be the ones who go for help more readily than us male chauvinistic men. Here in New Zealand, it's been great having ex-All Blacks like John Kerwin having the courage to go on television and talk openly about their depression. The elderly are more prone to the problem because of the length of their lifespan and the losses and changes that inevitably happened in their lives. Separated or divorced people and single people are more likely to suffer from this affliction than happily married couples. Now, while depression is not necessarily life-threatening, undiagnosed and untreated, it usually leads to feelings of self-harm and unfortunately, even suicide. A combination of a chronic, deep-seated feeling of helplessness and desperation are worrying signs. Now, the good news is that depression is treatable, often with medication and with counselling together. And if it's clinical depression, it's going to need both of those, because depression is linked to a chemical imbalance in the brain. And there's a range of medications that can help increase the neurotransmitters that elevate moods. There are the SSRIs, the serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, what a mouthful, such as fluoroxetine or Prozac or paroxetine. There are also the TCAs, the famous tricyclics, such as amitriptyline, and other groups called the MAIOs, the monamine oxidize inhibitors. Most medications take several weeks to work. I think you could argue that your body is actually like a chemist shop and it can produce almost every chemical you want. And what happens with antidepressant medication? It seems to still the stress 
and allows the body to produce what the body needs. And so there is an argument that the well-being a person receives from antidepressant medication may be every bit as much that the body itself is now functioning properly, assisted by the medication. The medical profession is really unclear as to the nature of depression and certainly the nature of antidepressants themselves. Some clients can even get help from herbal treatments, such as the uh, St. John's wort. I think the Germans discovered that about 200 BC. One researcher, the man called Griffiths, maintains that low serotonin levels in the person's life are simply the cause of the factor and not brain chemistry. Brain chemistry for him is simply an effect of depression and not its cause. Now there are lots of theories about the etiology or the causes of depression, from the purely scientific that treats it with drugs, to the extreme religious that simply says it's all spiritual and demon possession anyway. But for most sufferers, depression just turns up. Some of the symptoms are emotional, feeling miserable, lack of self-esteem, a deep sense of hopelessness, strong feelings of shame and guilt for no apparent reason, extreme sadness, feelings of worthlessness and of failure, excessive crying, feeling flat emotionally, no more joy out of anything you used to do, and often becoming irritable and hopelessly hard to live with. Sometimes the symptoms are not emotional, but motivational. Apathy, a lack of desire, boredom, discouragement, a lack of control, feeling it's useless to try because I'm going to fail anyway. Other times the symptoms are not emotional, they're not motivational, they're in the thinking. Negative thought patterns, a black outlook on life, a sense of believing only failure is going to happen, a deep inferiority, self-blame, everything that goes wrong is my fault. Sometimes there can be a history of depression in families, and the jury is out as to whether that is genetic or whether it is a learned response to the way families cope with stress and trauma. My culture, although I'm born in New Zealand, is Irish, and uh, we're the famous people because we Irish never lose our tempers. No, we don't. We know exactly where they are. There are cultural considerations. In Western European culture, which tends to promote individualism, that can easily lead to isolation, loneliness, helplessness, and in severe cases, narcissism where the person gets so self-absorbed they turn right in on themselves and those people are very, very hard to help. Like the Narcissi flower, just focusing entirely on a universe that is entirely themselves. In some more collective communities and cultures where there's a more embracing attitude to shared responsibility and where there is a greater acceptance of differences, it seems as if the incidence of the problem is less. Here in New Zealand, far too many depressed people feel such a failure and they're afraid to go for help because they're afraid to be found out that they just might have an emotional or even a mental problem. There's usually a link between experiencing depression and patterns of sleep 
And my friend, Professor George Sieber, has been very helpful here. Many clients complain that negative thoughts go round and round in their minds when they try to go off to sleep. The literature on sleep shows us that every one and a half to two hours we go through a pattern of dream sleep, uh, referred to as NREM, uh, non-rapid eye movement, followed by dream sleep, REM, rapid eye movement. And after about 15 or so minutes, we reach a state of semi-consciousness where probably half of you have got to now. (laughs) Neither waking nor sleeping. Suddenly, you fall asleep. I remember the story of the man who was drunk and was in a sermon once and uh, he was falling off to sleep and he began to snore and the preacher preached louder and louder and in the end he couldn't help it. This guy was sound asleep. He picked up his Bible and he threw it at the drunk. And the drunk woke up and said, Hit me again. I can still hear him talking. (laughs) When we go off to sleep at stage one, at deeper stages of sleep, we get shorter and the rapid eye movement sleep gets longer. Now the interesting thing is with depressed people, the sleep pattern gets reversed. The rapid eye movement sleep happens much more quickly and decreases towards the morning. Researchers are now suggesting that depressed people do so much worrying and negative thinking during the day that there's an overload of dreaming that just sucks out the brain energy. So when they wake up, they haven't had recuperative, deep sleep, and they wake up exhausted and it's hard to get up. They wake up with this black dog heavy feeling. According to this view, people generate their own depression. One of the key suggestions to overcome that problem is to change the daytime thinking pattern to break the 24-hour negative cycle. That is why CBT, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, is so helpful as a tool in therapy. I remember going to a seminar uh, with the Compass team last year and a very famous uh, scholar from Sydney, a very, very fine teacher, a, a lady, was talking about the big breakthrough that cognitive behaviour therapy was and how new it was. And I sort of put up my hand and said, well, I agree, but I don't think it's new. And she said, well, it is relatively new. I said, well, I think it's thousands of years old. She said, how come? And I said, well, in Proverbs there's a little verse that says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And everybody laughed at my expense because most of them weren't Christians. And she stopped and she said, you know, that verse sums it up. Because you see, depression isn't caused by how you think in your head. It's deeper than that. What causes depression? The simple answer is we don't really know. It is very clear that there's a chemical imbalance that develops in the brain. Some say that causes the depression. Some say it is simply the result of stinking thinking. Whatever, there is a brain chemical factor for depression to occur. The literature on the causes of depression suggests that probably there are a number of factors, a complex mix, and a careful diagnosis can help most people heal some and enable others to learn with the reality that they may need medication for the rest of their lives. There's almost in every case a factor of loss somewhere. Loss of something, loss of someone, loss of faith, health, hope, self-worth. 
Aaron Beck and others take the cognitive trail. They ascribe the problem to irrational negative thought patterns or schemata. Negative thoughts about oneself or the world or the family or the marriage or my church or even God himself. Others don't go down the cognitive trail, they go down the behavioural track. Inadequate reinforcement. By the way, if anyone wants a new gift, can we have a gift in church called encouragement? You know, sometimes I don't know about you, but I, I get so blessed by these musicians and I feel a little embarrassed sometimes when I go up and say to them, hey, that was great this morning, guys. But you know, to be an encourager is a gift from God. Others don't go down the cognitive track or the behavioural uh, trail. They go down the pathway of social factors, loss of status, loss of role, the inability to balance one's needs against the needs of others. And yet others go down the existentialist track. They stress in our society that we are so alone in an empty universe and a vast world that has no creator and no purpose and going nowhere and without meaning. There's also evidence to suggest that some depression is what we call endogenous. It has an inherited biological component to it. And that would certainly seem to be so for the serious bipolar sufferers. There's simply no model that fits all. In earlier times, it was thought the thing is just psychological and emotional, or it's entirely biological brain chemistry. Nowadays, we think we have to treat this as being both. There are some physical causes for depression. Low levels of certain neurotransmitters in the brain. Serotonin, norandroline, dopamine. Sometimes it can be an imbalance of hormones. I remember a lady coming to see me from the Waikato and her husband thought she was as crazy and loopy as it was possible to be. She was simply suffering from hypothyroidism and with thyroxin, her doctor fixed the problem within a few days. Diseases of the nervous system like dementia or Alzheimer's or certainly Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, strokes, some over-the-counter pills you can get from the chemist shop can give you a depression. Some oral contraceptives do. Some anti-inflammatory drugs. Some anti-hypertensives. Diet pills. And some cold and flu suppressants. And certainly some laxatives. Illegal drugs like marijuana, for example. Oh, I'm sick and tired of people telling me it's not dangerous. It simply depletes the serotonin. Long-term marijuana use in teenagers is almost certain to make them high candidates for serious psychotic depression. Excessive alcohol. Alcohol is a depressant. It takes the brakes off. And diet factors, you students. Inadequate balanced diet. No good balance of vitamins and minerals, B, C and D. No matter, so, no wonder so many students go down with feelings of depression. They don't listen to their mothers and eat fresh fruit and vegetables. Diseases like cancer, chronic fatigue syndrome, and environmental pollutants like carbon monoxide, some insecticides, and some chemical solvents. And the big one, long-term pain, particularly back pain. 
And I can never pronounce this one properly, but polymyralgia, where the whole body, these tremendous pains, and certainly arthritis. Those physical causes can actually trigger depression. Now all of this talk about depression can pose real problems for Christians. Particularly if you tend to take a simplistic, triumphant approach, hoping that all of these kinds of problems can instantly be taken away by the miraculous healing power of Jesus Christ. Some unwise preachers I have heard even say, if you're suffering from depression, throw your medications away and trust God for healing. Now let's get this straight. I believe my God can do anything. I believe that Jesus Christ performs miracles and still is performing miracles. I think there isn't any healing, physical, emotional or mental, that Jesus Christ cannot heal. But do the advocates of this instantaneous stuff, do they actually go to the dentist and have a root canal done without a Novocaine injection? Would they dare to have open surgery without an anaesthetic? Would they allow their child's broken leg to heal without medical intervention? And not to mention the absolute hypocrisy of preachers telling people to throw away their medication when they have to wear glasses so they can see properly. All of this nonsense creates a tremendous unhelpful guilt that can be associated with depression in Christians. And this can be a very real reason why there is a reluctance to seek help. Our Bible is certainly not silent on the subject of depression and despondency. We've got King Saul's deep gloom that was relieved by the wonderful musicians like we have here this morning. When little David comes along with his soothing music, we pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. The Life Application Bible says, Saul was simply depressed. It's probably about a third of the Psalms describe depression. Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? And so why disturbed within me? And try this one, written by David when he was in a black cave. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him I tell him all my troubles. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge, no one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I might praise your name. Then the righteous will gather around me because of your goodness to me. Well, you can take the whole of the book of Job if you want depression. Or try the whole book of Lamentations. That's a good read. Sometimes a crisis or traumatic event can trigger depression. These days we call it post-traumatic stress syndrome. The huge down that follows a huge adrenaline rush. Soldiers falling apart long after the horrors and tragedies of the battle. You know, they used to call that the Elijah syndrome. 
Remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? After years of drought, challenged the whole nation to a uh, test to see whether God would answer by fire. And hundreds of the priests of Baals were challenged to call down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice and nothing happened. And then all on his own, Elijah, we read about it in 1 Kings chapter 18, 16 to 46. Elijah, all on his own, douses the altar with water. Where did he get the water? I thought there was a drought. And right on top of a barren mountain. Scholars for years have tried to answer that question. Beverly and I remember a Fijian preacher, Tafiri Inia, preaching in Hamilton, New Zealand. He tackled that thorny question. He said, on my island in Rotuma, no one is so silly to go out in the sun for any length of time without taking their own personal drinking water. And he suggested that maybe Elijah challenged the people of Israel to surrender their personal resources onto the altar and see what God would do. What a wonderful thought. Well, if you know the story, fire came down from heaven and consumed the altar. And Elijah destroyed the priests of Baal. And his faith was vindicated. And the drought was over. And Queen Jezebel, that painted bimbo, said, Elijah, I'll get you for this. And he hits the wall emotionally. The Bible says he runs 150 miles. Well, that's Wellington to Whanganui. That's Christchurch to Kaikoura. That's Dunedin all the way up to Timaru. And that's Auckland, south to Hamilton, south to Cambridge, and all the way to Tirau. And he wants to commit suicide. 1 Kings 19.3, post-traumatic stress syndrome. I don't want to shock you, but most pastors who commit suicide statistically tend to do it after the weekend on a Monday. How did God deal with Elijah? He didn't say to him, pull yourself together, man. He didn't say, get up and stop moaning. He didn't say, what a wimp you are. He didn't say, don't you trust in God, Elijah. He didn't say, how ungrateful you are. Look what I've just done for you. He didn't say, you've got no right to feel like this. And he didn't say, where's your faith, boy? God didn't kick him when he was down. God let him have some healing sleep. God replenished him twice in Beersheba. And then when old Elijah's faith and strength was returning, Elijah travelled 40 days and nights and got to Mount Sinai, the sacred mountain, to a cave where he got some counselling. A bit like David in Psalm 142 in a cave. There was a rushing mighty wind. There was thunder and lightning and fire. And then there was a still small voice. The NIV says a gentle whisper. Elijah, it's okay. You can come down from your adrenaline high. I'm here with you. Elijah found, like the old hymn, a little place of mystic grace, of self and sin swept bare, 
where I can look into your face and talk with you in prayer. Come, occupy my silent place and make your dwelling there. More grace is wrought in quietness than any is aware. And then God kicked him in the backside with cognitive behavior therapy. Now, Elijah, let's deal with these negative automatic patterns of your thoughts. This nonsense about there being you the only true prophet of Israel. I've got 7,000 every bit as good as you in the land, lad. James in chapter 5 verse 17 reminds us that dear old Elijah was a man of equal passions just as we are. Now even if you think that's an isolated biblical incident, you try the story of Jonah. The greatest revival of repentance in a heathen nation. And what does the successful preacher do? He turns in on himself and wants to commit suicide. Jonah chapter 4 verse 3. He felt the complete loss of his prophetic ministry. And God, in this case, uses exploratory therapy, the Socratic questioning technique. Jonah, do you have any real reason to be so angry? God demonstrates that Jonah seemed to be more concerned about the vine that had given him shelter, struggling and dying, than he was about the 120,000 people in Nineveh who had repented. These so-called reactive depressions result from too much stress accumulating and causing overload. In professions like doctors and we counsellors and psychologists and preachers, we are above the rest of you, we don't suffer depression, we have burnout. (laughs) Let's call it what it is. A perceived or real loss can be a factor in depression. Things like job loss, separation, divorce, bereavement, a real grief for loss. Now for people who are suffering that loss, perhaps first of all it can be helpful to identify what the loss really is. And then to understand the impact of each loss. And then separate the real loss from the imagined or the threatened loss. You see, you can only grieve for real loss. And Satan is a past master at the art of telling lies and creating false guilt. That's why healthy, positive thinking is so helpful. The old book, The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale, is still a good read. Convert your imagined and feared losses into real ones, or else disregard them. And get some help to do some genuine grieving. Our Lord in Matthew 5 verse 4 said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Change the cognitive process. A couple of years ago, I was at Auckland University for a famous lecture by Dr. Phyllis Silverman, one of the professorial board of Harvard University. And she was teaching us on grief and explaining to us all that the only way out of grief is what you believe. And this was challenged from the floor by an unbelieving therapist who objected, and I say very loudly, that she was an atheist. And Dr. Silverman said, oh, stop being so childish. Your atheism is your belief system. (laughs) What about the New Testament and depression? In Matthew, the 11th chapter, we've got the interesting story when John the Baptist went to prison. John was Jesus' cousin. Remember, he had seen Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
but now in the dark dungeon and the prison, he sends his disciples to see if Jesus really was the right one. Doubts and discouragement are the cousins of depression. Isn't the whole thing simply spiritual and demonic, people say? Well, certainly not in all cases. In the Middle Ages, everything of mental sickness was considered demonic. I can still remember the 50s, before the medication breakthroughs, those foreboding prison-like mental institutions locking people away with barbaric treatments. In recent weeks, there has been a publication in the newspaper testing the results of the antidepressants and suggesting that the placebo effect was the realistic therapeutic. If this were true, it's hard to imagine how antidepressants work on animals. A friend of mine, Kath Fruish from Thames, who's a vet, tells me antidepressant medications work very well on domestic animals. The truth is that a combination of medication and counselling helps people. The particular test, by the way, if you're anxious about it, first of all, I would like to know the degree of the depression in the participants. I would also like to know the length of the study that was done and also what was missing is the, 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 the development of relapse after that particular test. Surely no one's going to suggest that we go back to the Middle Ages before the medications were available, when there was simply no help for sufferers or their families other than long-term commitment. But what about depression in Jesus? In his Sermon on the Mount in the fifth chapter of Matthew, Jesus outlined a magnificent prescription for mental health, the Beatitudes, or as someone has called it, the Beautiful Attitudes. Echoed in St. Paul, the Philippians' fourth chapter, The Garden of the Mind. I think there's a wrestling moment of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. There's that agonizing moment on the cross when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, we've got a most amazing story. If you do a study on the healings of Jesus, you'll find something quite interesting. In Mark, the 10th chapter, uh, Reuben referred to this the other day, Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus in a flash, just like that. But in John chapter 9, there's another healing of a blind man where Jesus anointed him and he had to walk right through the city until he was healed. Then there was another case where the man was at the pool of Bethesda for most of his life and he wasn't healed when Jesus laid hands on him. He wasn't healed when Jesus touched him. He was healed when he did what Jesus told him to do. He picked up his mat and he walked and he was healed. There was the Roman centurion servant who was healed when Jesus just gave the word. And then there was Jairus' daughter, the Jewish synagogue leader's daughter, who had died and Jesus came into the home and there was a resurrection. In 1958, when I was at the Salvation Army Bible College, I was assigned to go door to door in the streets of Tiaro with tracks and the war cry uh, to witness to people. I remember a Maori girl who turned out to come from Gisborne took the war cry magazine each week and wouldn't talk. So I wrote a note on it saying, look, I'm preaching up at Brooklyn on Sunday night. Do you want to come? To my surprise, she turned up. And there was I 
as a young student boring the little congregation with my so-called knowledge of scripture, going on and on and on about the words of Jesus in that story, Talitha Kum. And in the end I said, Jesus was actually saying, girly, get up. And to my surprise, the Maori girl got up. And she walked to the front and she knelt there in prayer. And a nurse from the Bethany Hospital, who was also a Maori from Gisborne, led her to Christ because she didn't know much English. The seeker's name was Gurley. Gurley Hearty. She heard her name called and she came. <laughs> and then if you want another type of healing was that great moment when Lazarus was all wrapped up like a teenager in a sleeping bag in Easter camp. And Jesus says, come forth, and he jumps up, all wrapped up in his grave clothes. But here in Luke 24, we have a different kind of healing process and a certainly a different time frame. There's a resurrection party going on in Jerusalem and two of the disciples have packed it in. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along together? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them called Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have happened these days? What things? They were going on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It drops 3,800 feet downhill, depressed, walking into the setting sun. With the loss of hope, their position became hopeless. A complete cancellation of faith and trust because you see depression Sometimes the first casualty is faith. And in this situation, there's nowhere to go but up. Some claim, possibly, the person suffering complete loss of hope and walking through the valley of the shadow of death is the only person who really knows about faith. I remember one lady coming to me. She had lost her farm. She'd lost her marriage. She'd finished up on a domestic purposes benefit at a damp flat and couldn't see God in it anywhere. And I remember putting my satchel in front of her with a glass paperweight behind it that she couldn't see. And I said, uh, can you see what's behind my satchel? She got very angry because she didn't want to play silly psychological games. And I remember saying to her, well, if you could see, what would you need faith for? This evidence of what we cannot see. I wonder if Jesus didn't show who he really was in front of her because that would have shattered their faith even more. What Jesus did was used cognitive, cognitive behaviour therapy. There's an activating event, there's a belief system, and there's a consequence. The activating event, the mission was an embarrassing failure. Their belief system, we can't believe what the others are believing and we don't have the faith. See the consequence, we are sad, we're lost emotionally, we're hopeless and we're quitting. Now if you can shift a belief system ever so slightly, you can't change the activating event, 
But if you can shift the belief system ever so slightly, you can significantly change the consequences. That's cognitive behavior therapy. So on the journey, he started with Moses. He took them back to kindergarten faith. Little Bible stories about Moses and the bulrushes. And bit by bit, he built and restored their belief system until the consequences radically changed. It would have taken a couple of hours to get from the inn to the inn of Emmaus. And as they got to the inn, they said, oh, please come on in and join with us. And the Bible says that they asked him to, to, to share the meal and, and they knew him. The Bible doesn't say how, but I like to think that as he took his hands out from underneath his robes to make the blessing, they saw the nail prints in his hands. And then Jesus was gone. And so were they. All the way back to Jerusalem, tell the others that they had seen the Lord. But hang on a minute, Jesus touched the blind man and he saw like that. Why didn't Jesus heal depression just like that? He could. He chose not to. And I hope that gives help for people suffering from depression that it is very, very, very rarely an instantaneous healing. Great men of God like John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Wesley all suffered from depression. Kierkegaard, the philosopher, claims that pastors and ministers by the very nature of their work will most probably, inevitably suffer bouts of depression at some time in their ministry. On the political scene, you've got great men like Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill, who called his depression the black dog. Writers like Dostoevsky, artists like Vincent van Gogh and great New Zealander Rita Angus, It was my privilege as a little boy to live right next to her and to see her paint herself through her depressions, to see her paint some of those wonderful paintings that are now so famous. And what about the long list of musicians, the highs and lows of music? What about us mere ordinary people? What are we to do if the black dog comes along? Well, we can teach him some tricks of our own. In her work on stress, Iris Barrow, the Brethren lady here in New Zealand, gives a little list that's helpful. Make time for relaxation. Have some exercise. Change your negative thinking. Learn to cope with panic and fear. Learn to express and talk about the issues. And learn to say, so what? Use your imagination Have a good look at your diet. Learn to let your anxieties go to God. Face up to issues. Be positive. And have in Christ a true self-worth. I love the story of Peter Daniels who staggered into a Billy Graham crusade in Adelaide. He couldn't read or write and he was in his 30s. He'd been on a benefit and his father had been on a benefit all of his life in Australia. And when the appeal was made, Peter Daniels, at his 30 years of age, comes forward to give his life to Jesus Christ. And when the counsellor hands him a decision card to sign, Peter Daniels says, I can't read or write. The guy thought he was joking. And after the crusade, Peter Daniels says, I walked out of that auditorium and I knew I was a son of God. And if I'm a son of God, I can't be a failure. 
and if I'm not a failure, then I'm going to get off the benefit. So he went downtown and asked some people, what do you do to make money? And somebody, it was a real estate agent, says, well, get into property. Doing what, says Peter Daniels? And the guy jokingly said, see that high building over there? Sell that one, son, and you'll make some dough. A few weeks later, Peter Daniels brings in an American tourist into the real estate office to buy the building. The man was very wealthy. He'd grown up in Adelaide and wanted to buy a building there. Peter Daniels had stood at the airport saying, do you want to buy a building in Adelaide? He got someone to write the note. And when he went to the real estate agent's office, the agent showed him a sale and purchase agreement and Peter Daniels says, I can't read. Can you fill it out for me? Then he went back to school. When he was a kid, his teacher wrote across his school report, this boy will amount to nothing. Her name was Mrs. Evans. There was a huge hue and cry because he published his first book, Mrs. Evans, You Were Wrong. (laughs) Peter Daniels went on to become Australia's most successful real estate agent and spent years on the board of Youth for Christ in Australia. Get a self-worth from Jesus. You know, you're not alone in the universe. Jesus Christ is only a whispered prayer away and so is help. The New Zealand Association of Counselors, and I'm a foundation member of the New Zealand Christian Counselors Association, our membership is listed on the internet. Sometimes just simply go to your GP and get some help. But whatever you do, talk to somebody if the black dog is around. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are merely the branch. Without me you can do nothing. You know, sometimes when people hit the wall, they're desperate. They go through the valley of the shadow of death itself. And you know, sometimes they discover something. That God was real. That Jesus Christ was there. And they make a life-changing discovery that helps them through the darkness. Some people never suffer the black dog. It doesn't come near them. And some of them never experience the wonder of knowing God himself. What I'm saying here is that depression can have a positive effect if it forces us to evaluate our lives, to deal with unresolved issues, if our life is completely out of balance. Depression is not necessarily a bad thing.